In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Please be seated. Last week we celebrated Christ the King Sunday, and we contemplated what it means that Christ is our King, and we uh, talked about His uh, coming again, and so we now have this season of Advent to prepare for the second coming of Christ. We prepare for His second coming by preparing to celebrate His first coming. Let me say that again. We prepare for His second coming by preparing to celebrate for His first coming. So we're preparing to celebrate Christmas, the first coming of Christ, and to think about what that means that Christ came into the world in order to prepare for His second coming, when He will come again. We know that these two comings are going to be distinctly different and yet the same. The first time He came in obscurity, the second time He will come in great power. But both times He comes to uh, bring righteousness and salvation for the world. And the bringing of righteousness and the bringing of salvation is what the prophet Isaiah is talking about. The prophet Isaiah is reminding us and foretelling about the promise of the Christ. And he is uh, talking to us not only about the first, but about the second coming. You remember that Christian time is not linear time, it's not progressive time, it's not pagan time, which is circular, uh, where there's this idea of fate or destiny. But Christian time is moving forward and yet in this repetitive pattern, this uh, cycle of redemption and salvation, this cycle of the Lord uh, revealing himself to us. And so Isaiah is entering into this spiral and he's talking about not only the first coming of Christ, but the second coming. And he tells us that in this coming, uh, he is uh, going to the Holy Mountain. The Holy Mountain, of course, is the city of Jerusalem, uh, Zion, and the mountain where the city of Jerusalem stands. Uh, but yet it's more than this place of geography. It's more than this specific city. The mountain he's referring to also is this spiritual mountain. It's the dwelling place of the Lord. It's when the Lord comes and he brings his Holy Spirit and uh, we are set apart and in a way of being removed from the daily grind of life and we're brought into a spiritual place of renewal and new understanding. So the mountain is not only Jerusalem, but the mountain is our experience of God, our experience of the Holy Spirit, and the way that when we listen to Him and receive Him, we're set apart and we're brought into a new place and time. We read that the Lord's desire is to bring us into this mountain house. This mountain house, again, is this dwelling place. It's the place where God wants to dwell with His people, where He wants to abide with us, where He wants to tabernacle with us. And the Lord's desire in tabernacling and dwelling on this mountain house, this removed holy place, is for Him to teach us His ways so that we may walk in His paths. Sometimes we are into learning something about the Lord and His ways, but then the application of that and walking in paths of righteousness may be a different thing because it is difficult to do and there are uh, consequences for it. The Lord's desire is to go up with us, it's to separate with us, it's to have time apart for us, to dwell with us, and then to teach us His ways that we may walk in His ways. He is going to set forth His law and His Word. He's going to place it upon us, and He's going to place it upon us in a way where in our minds, and our hearts, and our lives are reoriented. We have a new direction, and the direction is that we desire to live 
at peace with our God and with our neighbor. Our desire is to live at peace with God and with our neighbor. And this is going to be our first focus. We read that um, the people uh, beat their spears into pruning hooks and uh, their uh, swords into plowshares. This is not a, a naive understanding. This isn't saying that, um, that war is suddenly um, ending and that we have no need to protect or to defend ourselves. But this is saying that our first, our first focus is upon peace. Right? Our first focus is upon peace. You remember our reading from Matthew at, uh, at the Thanksgiving service uh, was, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Right? He says, The Lord knows that you have need for uh, food. He knows that you have need for clothes. Indeed, he knows that we need protection, uh, that we need to create a safe place for our communities. But that's not what we do first. We don't turn to defense first. We turn towards the offense of love and of living at peace. That has to be our first focus. And this first focus is the theme of all of these readings, which is this armor of light, this light that surrounds us and that protects us, which is a funny kind of a, of a vision, if you will, an armor of light. We wouldn't think of light as being uh, the natural uh, material for armor, would we? It's see-through, it, it doesn't seem like it would protect us in a way that, that something else would, and yet uh, light is exactly the armor uh, that the Lord provides for us. How is that? Because the first, the first defense that we have is to do right. See, we're always thinking about avoiding wrong if we're thinking about um, not doing wrong, if our focus is upon wrong or avoiding it in any way, our focus is in the end upon wrong. But if we're focused upon the light of God and upon Him illuminating the right path, the righteous path, the path of justice, then that is our first and best defense that we do when we live according to the right of God, and then we will walk into the blessings and benefits of His righteousness. Now, does this mean that nothing bad will happen to us if we do this? Does this mean that everything's going to be right and perfect? No, of course it doesn't. But the first the first thing that we do, our first focus, is upon God's light and walking according to His ways, and this is going to be our first defense, our first remedy against evil. And so evil and uh, the, the dangers of, of evil, and indeed the dangers of Christ coming again and His remaking the world, is the theme here in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, this passage, chapter 24, is in the middle of Jesus' teaching in Jerusalem. You'll remember that he has already entered into the city of Jerusalem. We've um, heard the hosannas, the, the Palm Sunday liturgy of his entrance into the holy city. He's cleansed the temple. He's kicked out the money changers. He's teaching in the, 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 the place of the sanctuary of uh, the temple in this uh, public square. And he's having this dialogue with the Pharisees. And it's in the middle of that week, in the middle of Holy Week, between his entrance and his crucifixion, that we uh, hear this passage about uh, the second coming. And Jesus, again, um, does this kind of cycle of history. He gives us this uh, remembering what has happened in order to prepare for what is going to happen. And the first thing that he tells us is about this um, recreation of the world. Now, sometimes people have read this to think, oh, the world is going to be destroyed, that it's all going to be ripped apart, that creation will be no more. 
And that doesn't really seem to be the sense of Scripture from beginning to end. The sense is more that uh, creation was going to be renewed and restored. And we'll see that in a little bit in the theme of Noah and the flood. So what's he saying here about the sun and the moon and the stars? It's important for us maybe just to remind ourselves about the importance of the sun and the moon and the stars for ancient peoples. It's difficult for us as um, uh, modern people to think about their importance because we can forget about the stars. Indeed, living in the most uh, light-polluted city in the world, sometimes we can go a long time without even seeing or noticing stars. Yet for the ancient peoples, the stars were so present and so beautiful and so powerful, and they uh, quickly were able to learn how to read the stars to know where they were, where they were, and the way to get where they were going, to orient themselves, to know their location, and to know uh, their directions. Indeed, the sun and the moon uh, are able to do the same thing. It's a kind of a calendar in the skies that they are able to perceive the seasons. They're able to know where they're at in this uh, beautiful cycle of the sun and the moon and the stars and the way that it tells us what season we're in uh, and uh, the time of, of day and our orientation in the earth, right? To know our location and to be able to tell our direction. And so when the Lord says that the sun and the moon and the stars will be no more, he's saying that his light is going to be so much greater than those other lights. His light is going to so overpower those other lights that it's his light that we will be determining our location, our place, and our direction. It is by the light of Christ that we perceive who we are, that we perceive where it is that we are, that we perceive what it is that we're supposed to be doing, and the way to get there. He is our guide. He is our direction. And so all things are going to be illumined through him. He is going to be that first uh, and great light. And then he says that uh, we will know that he's appearing, unlike his first coming that's in obscurity, where only a few knew about it, and, and they knew about it through these uh, special and unique ways. The second time, the Lord says, don't believe anybody who tells you, oh, Jesus has returned, or he's come over here, because all creation will know it all at once. Everybody will know and will perceive the coming of Christ again, and we will see his uh, sign in the sky, the sign of of the Son of Man. And again, this is the sign of the cross. It's, it's the real sign of the cross, yet more than a physical manifestation of the cross in the sky, it's a perception of all people of the sacrifices of God, a perception of all people all at once of his humility and of his meekness, and all of creation will immediately be convicted by the truth of his love, of his sacrificial love. We will all know where we are and who we are by immediately perceiving in a new, profound, and radical way that sacrificial love of the sign of the cross. So he's coming this time in power and in great glory, and he will bring all of his people together as Isaiah had promised. He tells us to, to look for these things in the way that we would look for the, the flowering of the fig tree. And the fig tree is a very interesting figure for us to think about. You remember, as soon as we read about the fig tree, we should be going back to Genesis and to the Garden of Eden and to Adam and Eve. You remember that after they sinned and they perceived their nakedness, they perceived their distinctness from God, they clothed themselves with the fig tree. Do you remember that? And the, the fig leaf, uh, you remember we've talked about before, is this very spiny leaf. There are millions of tiny little spines on a fig leaf. 
If you've ever seen one, you should really check it out. And it's an incredibly rough kind of a leaf. It's, it has all these tiny, tiny little spines. And if you rub it on your skin, those little spines stick into your skin. In other words, this is the last leaf in the garden that you would want to put on your private parts, right? But this is what we do, isn't it? Whenever we perceive our own sin, we think everybody notices it and we go over it and over it, right? It's like a broken tooth that we rub our tongue over, over and over and over again. You know your tooth is broken. You can stop running your tongue over it, but we do that. And that's the way we do with sin, right? We keep perseverating over it. And he's saying that this is the way that sin will be in the fig tree. So we need to be mindful of that sin. We need to be aware so that we can um, avoid it and turn to... Uh, the medicine, turn to the medicine of Christ and his gospel message of salvation. And he says that the generation will not pass away. Now when he says generation, he's not talking about boomers or Gen Xers here, right? He's not talking about these 20-year periods of, of people groups. For him, generation is a, a people group that believes the gospel. This generation is the church. So he's saying the church itself, the generation of the church will not pass away. So the church is going to be maintained through this time. And that his word will not take his word will not pass away. So his word is going to be maintained. How is his word maintained? His word is maintained in the church, right? This is one of the primary jobs of the church to be telling the word of God, to be protecting the word of God, to be perpetuating the word of God. This is what we do as a generation, as a people. And so we will not cease doing that um, until this coming again. And he says that we will not know uh, the day and the time, that this is going to be a mystery that we need to be ready for. And that mystery means that we are supposed to be perpetually at all times ready for the coming of Christ, that we're always ready and prepared. So we don't stop getting married. We don't stop starting businesses. We don't stop any of these things. Uh, but we continue in this um, preparedness, in this prepared attitude of the coming of Christ. Now I need to take just a side note here because um, there has been a very popular mistaken theology that's been perpetuated um, for a long time, and that is uh, millennialism. Millennialism is this idea that there's a thousand years of the church and then a thousand years of Satan. And with this, there's this kind of, uh, you know, left behind people getting snatched up. Uh, and then uh, this other, you know, thousand or, or a million years that go by. And this is um, all very new theology. It was started and perpetuated by the American and British church in the 1860s and 70s. I'll leave it to you to tell me what was going on with Americans and Britons in the 1860s and 70s that they promoted this kind of millennial theology and this kind of left behind theology. It took a couple of things. It took some things. It took the Americans and British thinking that they were exceptional Christians, that they knew something that the rest of Christians throughout time and space didn't know. That seems kind of obvious. It took removing themselves from the history and the, the rootedness of ancient Israel and the Jewish character of the Gospels. That seems to check out. And then it takes them seeing themselves as a the kind of church that was removed from temptation that was removed from uh, from the tribulation and to do that we had to see ourselves as some kind of special um, progressive Christianity that was moving forward towards some kind of perfection and so it again is, has this touch this taint of progressivism 
See, they didn't see themselves as being part of that suffering that the church has always experienced. There's always been a persecuted church. There's always been those who are killed for the gospel throughout the world. And we know that right here and this time there are Christians right now who are in jail and who are risking their lives to worship the Lord, right? And to the degree that we could see ourselves as separate from them is the degree that we stop being Christians. If we don't see ourselves as intimately connected with our brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering persecution, uh, we are not in the church. And so it's important to understand that uh, we are right now in the midst of the tribulation, right now in the midst of this suffering, and that when Christ comes again, um, all things will be made new. All things will be recreated. And he tells us that by talking about Noah's flood. Right? He's saying that this is going to be the same as Noah's flood. The first time he washes the world with water, and he says he won't do that again. The next time he's going to wash it with fire. So this new spiritual renewal of the church, this new cataclysmic restoring of all of creation will be done in this new and unique way where he will come again and he says we need to be aware of that, we need to be ready for it, so we need to stay awake and we need to be ready. Stay awake and be ready. And we stay awake through love. We are ready or prepared through love. See again, St. Paul in his letter to the Romans chapter 13 is talking about how it is that we live according to the law. And again, um, sometimes we get tempted into um, trying to anticipate or stop the negative, right? Um, so I'm told not to um, covet. So I'm going to think, don't covet, don't covet, don't covet, right? If you're thinking, don't covet, don't covet, what are you thinking of? Covenant, right? That way of trying to keep the law does not work. St. Paul is saying to fulfill the law, we have to fulfill it in love. So first off, we cannot owe anyone anything. And not only do I think this has to do with money, but it also has to do with sin. Right? When we sin against one another, then we're in debt to one another. So he's saying to avoid sin, we have to be in love. To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. How does this work practically? Right? If I'm thinking, oh man, you got that really nice new truck. I'm going to try not to covet it. It's not going to work. But if I've been praying, I want you to have a new truck. I want you to have good things. I want you to have a beautiful wife and family. I want you to have a great job. I want you to have um, good things for your house and beautiful things in your life. If I've been praying for those things for you and praying to you good, good things, then when you get good things, I celebrate with you rather than saying, oh, man, I wish that was mine. Because I've been investing my heart and mind into a desire for you to have new things. When we love one another, right, we want good things for one another. And the prayer of the Christian isn't just the stuff that I see in a catalog, right? Because I love God first. So when I love the Lord first, I begin to see the world and the people around me the way he sees them. And now I'm praying for you, not just out of a catalog. I'm praying for you as your Father in heaven prays for you. I'm wanting the things that your Father in Heaven wants for you. And those are the best things of all. So when I'm praying for you the way that the Father in Heaven prays for you, now I'm praying and fulfilling the law because I'm so desirous, so hungry and thirsty for you to have these good things that the idea of wanting those things for myself would be ridiculous. 
So we love in this urgency that keeps us awake and away from sleep. That emphasizes the works of righteousness so that we can avoid the works of darkness. And he says again, we put on the armor of light. The armor of light is so that we can orient ourselves according to the righteousness of God, doing those good things that keeps us from going in these paths of darkness. And I'm just going to point out briefly, these paths of darkness have to do um, with drunkenness. So we could talk about being drunk or high and the damage that that does because it doesn't allow us to perceive who we are and where we're at, right? We have a distorted sense of reality. So we're not able to see the world through the Holy Spirit and through his light, right? <clears throat> he moves very quickly then to sexual immorality because sexual immorality breaks the family unit, which is the entire foundation of society. And when we're being intimate with people we're not supposed to be intimate with, it leads to jealousy and it leads to um, uh, this um, quarreling that we can hear about all around our communities. Right, whenever we hear somebody loud on their phone arguing, it goes right to jealousy and quarreling that is directly from either a disordered sense of reality or from a sexual immorality that destroys our relationships, destroys our families, and keeps us from being founded upon the kingdom of God and his light. So we have to see the way God sees. And we have to see his light. And Isaiah's passage this morning starts with the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. The word that he saw. He didn't hear it. He saw it. He had a vision of Christ. That's what we need. We need to see Christ. Are we looking 